City Road Podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people. Hello everyone, Dallas Rogers here from City Road Podcast and the very special Festival of Urbanism Book Club. And today I've got Dinesh Waliwal talking about his new book, Animals and Capital. I'll put a link to the book on the City Road Podcast website, but let's get into the conversation. My name is Dinesh Wadiwal. I'm an associate professor in the discipline of sociology and criminology at the University of Sydney. And I did want to talk to you about three sort of big ideas in this book. The first big idea is about your idea about hierarchical anthropocentrism and capitalism, and we'll get into that. The second big idea is about labour, and I think you're doing something really interesting here with human and animal labour. The third big idea is a claim, really, that the factory farm is a new modality of agricultural capitalism, and I'll get you to talk me through that. But before we get there, I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of the factory farm, and this is the Festival of Urbanism, and so we're into all things cities. And so I think there's something interesting here about the factory farm and the old logics of the city where we separated the rural from the urban and we, you know, think about, you know, the city as this place that's not rural, but of course it's heavily connected to things like agricultural production. So how are you thinking about the factory farm? What is it for you in this book? But also how might we think about it in relation to cities and indeed in a world where people, more and more people are living in cities and probably more and more people are not thinking about where animal food production takes place, how it occurs, the violence involved, etc. Thanks for the question. That's an interesting one. I think there's been a fair bit of animal studies literature which has highlighted that one of the shifts in the production around animal-based food has been the move of that production from the city to the rural. And to an extent, this is very true. So large-scale factory farming largely doesn't happen in cities anymore. And if we look historically, like the the famous example is the Chicago stockyards, Um, you had factory farms, the origins of factory farms within cities. Um, That actually has an interesting labour question because, of course, large-scale labour movements, and it's no no surprise that Chicago is one of the... um, famous sites of contestation around labour in the 20th century. Um, Large-scale labour movements are concentrated within these urban areas and lots of those workers are involved in animal agriculture. Um, We definitely start to see factory farms move out of the city and that's generally true but not always true. So certainly you could go to Western Sydney and find intensive chicken production facilities, right? So that's not completely true, but certainly we see large-scale um, factory farming moving out of the city. I think my book maybe helps to, and we'll get into these questions of labour soon, but my book helps to tell a story about why this might have happened. Um, in terms of thinking about what the factory farm is, um, the proposal I make in the book is that the factory farm might be defined by a few features. One of these, like most factories, is that there's an attempt to make human labour time efficient. 
And usually that is done by reducing the number of humans that are involved in production per unit of production. So in a factory farm, you see fewer and fewer human workers on the scene. And we're seeing a tendency towards full automation. So we're seeing this in dairy production globally where you have full production facilities without humans present at all, just robots. The other thing you start to see is as humans leave production, more and more animals enter production because, of course, like any capitalist production process, um, commodities are overproduced and in order for animal-based food to be overproduced, you need lots of animals to be forcefully reproduced and placed in those facilities. So you see this dynamic interaction, reduction of human labour time and increase in the mass of animals in that production facility, or as I'll talk about, an increase in animal labour time. You then also see a rise in what I'll describe as fixed capital. So you see enclosures, you see machines, you see um, arrival of masses of raw materials to feed those animals. And so in a sense, we're seeing another interaction happening, which is reduction of, animal, of human labour time, an increase in the mass of animals that are involved in production, and an increase in fixed capital, enclosures, capital, um, uh, machines, technologies to make this all happen. And of course, the end product is a massification of, of consumption commodities, i.e. meat or, or dairy products. Now, the reason why I say this has some bearing on thinking about urbanism is that if we think about the tendency of these processes, it's very hard to place all of this within cities because you need to bring in lots of animals, you need to find ways to do the forced reproduction, you need to bring in masses of raw materials, and of course this starts to get inconsistent with cities. One of the reasons that um, industrialised animal agriculture started to disappear from large cities was largely around hygiene concerns, right? So people started to raise concerns about zoonotic disease and this led to those factory farms being placed outside of cities. And you can see why this tendency would, tend, would, would be an ongoing trajectory. The other side, of course, is that this helps with the general obfuscation or, or shielding from view of animal production. So again, animal studies scholars have pointed out that today we largely don't see where our food comes from. Um, in the case of animal-based food, we don't see the conditions under which um, that those animals endure. And we don't see the violence that goes into the, the steak or the glass of milk. Part of this happens because of the nature of the industry. So largely these facilities are shielded from view. Sometimes the law can collaborate in shielding them from view. So Australians will know that um, different governments in Australia have taken strong steps to criminalise the activities of animal advocates who've tried to show what is going on in the facilities. But the other trajectory is that placing these facilities outside of urban reach reduces the chance that anything's going to be seen by, by the general public because certainly in a society like Australia, which is highly urbanised, most people will never have the opportunity to see what is going on. So this, in a way, helps to explain that, that story. So the book is, well, I would say, sort of based in political economy 
although you might have something to say about that. But there's a couple of meta ideas that are hanging over the top of this book. So the idea of hierarchical anthropocentrism and capitalism, these two sort of meta ideas, and I guess sort of tied up in there would be the Anthropocene as well. So I'm interested in this kind of meta architecture of the book that sort of allows you a bit later on to get into the more political economy elements of this. Great. Thanks for that question. And it's interesting to think through. In 2015, I published a book called The War Against Animals, and it reflected most of my training, which is I'm trained as a political theorist. And that book was an attempt as a political theorist to look systematically at our relationships with animals and think as, as a political theorist, what, what do they look like? The finding of the book was that most of our relations with animals involve domination violence. And the book tries to systematically lay that out, including, I would say, a story of this about hierarchical anthropocentrism, which I'll talk about in a second. In the book, I, there's a chapter on property and uh, labour. And uh, I started some analysis of about thinking about our relations with animals as property and as commodities. In that chapter, I started to delve into the philosopher-economist Karl Marx and I found, as I started to read Capital, that there was just so much to, to actually explore there and it was something I couldn't do in one chapter. It started the idea for me of a second book which kind of follows on from The War Against Animals to look specifically at how does a kind of violent anthropocentrism mesh with our prominent economic system and how did it produce the kind of reality that we see before us today. So that's the kind of origin of the book. In um, Animals and Capital, I um, talk about the idea of hierarchical anthropocentrism. And just to unpack that concept, there's, there's some different ways we could look at anthropocentrism as a problem. So anthropocentrism, central to the word, means um, a kind of human-centric worldview. Now, you might say to me, Dinesh, how can we escape a human-centric worldview? Like we walk around the world as humans, we can't imagine what it would be to be a bat or a rat or a factory farm animal. And I think that's absolutely true. Hierarchical anthropocentrism is the idea that it's not only that we are human-centred, it's that we believe we are at the top of the heap. We believe that we are the superior species and following on from that, we have the right to do whatever we want to do to maintain our supremacy. And so if we think about that in policy terms, so as a kind of urbanist and urban planner, it's about it could be about centering humans in our policy making. So when we're designing cities, we think about how do we design cities for people and we don't think about how to design cities for animals and other creatures. So that's a kind of example that I use about anthropocentrism as it relates to kind of urban making. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And as you know, there's lots of people engaged in that space around city design, Jennifer Walsh and people like that, who've asked these questions about how do we design cities or even design designing buildings um, in ways that accommodate uh, or engage with nature and other hu non-humans um, in ways that 
don't replicate this sort of story of human domination of nature. Um, that story of hierarchical anthropocentrism has a particular relationship to animals, I believe. Um, one thing I emphasise is that it isn't just an attitude, it materialises in violence. And that's the way that this, this attitude materialises. And in the case of animals, it materialises in what I would describe as mass-scale violence for human benefit. So in that book, The War Against Animals, I make the argument that in a sense, if we think about the totality of what we do to animals, um, if we just look at the food system situation, um, probably we kill about 85 billion land animals um, last year, 85 billion land animals for food, and probably um, between two and three trillion fish um, for human food consumption, which is that the numbers are just mind-blowing. But one way to think about this is that this is, um, these are relationships of domination and violence for human benefit. Um, you might argue, some might argue, oh, well, this is necessary for humans to survive, and it's something I'll come back to later. But uh, certain- I, I wouldn't argue that. Okay. <laughs> one might argue. Uh, yeah, I'm a yeah. vegetarian. So. so one might argue this. Um, but I think at the, at the same time, I want to emphasise, let's be honest, that these are relationships of violence and domination for human benefit. Um, they rely on a kind of hierarchical anthropocentrism. And I want to differentiate this anthropocentrism from other anthropocentrisms. So... In describing this hierarchical anthropocentrism, I'm tying it to a mode of thinking that is interconnected with the rationalities that emerge with the European Enlightenment. So, of course, lots of thinkers in the environmental space have pointed out that um, the Enlightenment creates a particular rationalistic worldview that separates humans from nature and imagines that nature is just simply a resource to be hyper-exploited for human benefit. In my argument, this has a particular relationship to our food systems in that animals have been created as this commodity who we can violate and use with almost no limits for human benefit. And to me, actually, if we look at the factory farm, this is just a living example of this. I mean, anybody looking at this, I think, would have to say this is a kind of hellhole. Um, but it's only because of this hierarchical anthropocentrism that we've created a world where we believe this is okay, that we can do this to animals. And this is where I differentiate this particular rationality from um, different societies or different cultures that have used animals. Because, of course, you, animals have been used for food in, and other, other purposes in different cultures in different ways. But there's something about this hierarchical anthropocentrism that we have today that is quite different and has produced different forms of domination violence that are completely historically unprecedented. And one way to materially describe this is that per capita consumption of animal products is at a level that has never been seen in human history. Now, someone, someone might contest me on this, but I, 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 you know, certainly the data for the last 60 years will, will prove this. But I, I think there's nothing that compares to what we are doing to animals today, and this is a result of this mentality. Um, but the argument of the book Animals and Capital is that it isn't just about this hierarchical anthropocentrism. 
It's actually about this particular attitude coming into contact with an economic system that has produced this reality that we see before us. How we define capitalism, of course, is a big topic. But I'm going to say that capitalism, one, one way to view capitalism is that it's a system of production that overproduces commodities in order to arrive at surplus or, let's say, profit broadly. Um, so under capitalism, um, production becomes a way to produce money, surplus money, and you overproduce commodities as a way to produce overproduce this surplus money. And this money is then reinvested into the system to keep going. And of course, that definition tells us why we're in the mess, planetary mess that we are in today, because we have an economic system that will endlessly plunder the earth to make money, um, even at the cost of our own um, survival and the survival of other beings on the planet. If we think about this economic force of capitalism coming into contact with, the, with hierarchical anthropocentrism, we start to see why something like the factory farm would emerge. Um, and why this would be unprecedented, because you have an economic system that overproduces commodities and you have an attitude which assumes that you can just take animals, forcefully reproduce them on, on mass scale and treat them however you like to produce these massive commodities. Um, so to me, this putting these two things together is interesting. And in the book, I describe it as a kind of handshake. It's like these two forces coming together. Perhaps this anthropocentrism preceded capitalism in particular forms and uh, the book doesn't delve into that history but maybe there's a history to write there but certainly we can say today that these two forces have come together and they are use they usefully describe the reality we see before us in terms of our treatment of animals mm. and i think this leads really nicely to the second point in the book and that's a point about labor and, of course, in sort of Marxist political economy, there is, in inverted commas, the labour theory of value. And I think you're playing with this idea really productively here. It's like a, it's a more than human labour theory of value, if you like, that you're, you're building here where you're looking at the labour of animals in the factory farm and human animals as well and how that goes together. Can you sort of unpack that for me? Yeah, I'll, I'll try. And it's, as, as you say, it's a kind of central part of the book is to say, to ask the question, what is the value of animal labour power? Um, but let me just start by just thinking about how this labour question has been treated differently by contemporary theory. So in classical Marxist theory, um, labour is the thing that is seized upon by production. So it is labour power that has the capacity to produce surplus. And this, was, this is central to Marx's account in, in Capital. Um, largely, Marx was interested only in human labour. And if we, if we read through Marx, we can see that he has... I would say, ontological commitments to keeping the division between human labour power and other labour power. So we see this in the early writing of Marx. Um, I think it's interesting because, um, and something the book talks about in the chapter on labour is just this, I think it's slightly amusing um, exchange that happens. Well, it's not an exchange. It's a set of comments, comments that Marx makes in Capital Volume 2 about animal labour. 
he takes a swipe at Adam Smith. So Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations oddly um, suggests that maybe animals might be considered labour as, as a kind of labour power. And Marx takes strong objection to this, right? And I think what it's, what it's revealing to me is the way that the anthropocentrism of Marx ended up preventing him from actually seeing capitalism in a full way. And in a way, the claim I make in the book is that actually recognising non-human labour allows us to see capitalism as a more, in a more complete way rather than this kind of obsessive focus on human wage labour. In the book, I make the argument that maybe if we think about labour as or labour power as attractive because a difference can be attained between the reproductive costs of that labour and the value that labour produces. Maybe if we look at it that way, then this opens a very different way of looking at labour. So let me just unpack this for a moment. In the classical Marxist account, um, human labour power is useful for the reason that a wage is paid but the value produced by that labour will exceed that wage. So typically in, in a, 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 a worker in a business, um, they work for eight hours, they are paid, say, $100, but over that eight hours they produce $200 of value and the employer gets to pocket the $100. So this is the kind of classic story in Marx about how surplus value is attained. For Marx, it's easy to make this analysis because of the wage, because the wage is a monetary form and it allows us to say that uh, if this monetary form is less than the value produced by that labour, then there must be a surplus. He also makes clear that the point of the wage is for the worker to buy the means of reproducing their, their labour, i.e. its function is for the worker to go out and buy food and buy their shelter, and this allows them to turn up to work the next day. So it's the cost of the reproduction of labour power in Marx's words. When we look at other forms of production this becomes less clear when we don't have the wage. Um, but my argument in the book is that that doesn't mean that this is not a surplus-producing activity. So if, for example, an animal is uh, kept in a factory farm and the value that they produce over their lifetime exceeds the cost of reproduction, i.e. the cost of feed and inputs to production, then this is a surplus-producing activity. Um, in some ways, we actually have measures of this within animal agriculture. So animal agriculture producers will use things called feed conversion ratios, where they measure the difference between the feed that goes in and the output, i.e. the yield, the weight the animal gains over this period of time, and they seek to make this profitable. In my view, this is just a calculation of surplus. It's one that doesn't rely on the wage, but it similarly relies on this brute calculation between the co reproductive cost of labour and the output of production. They're kind of like wageless animals. Right. Like, yeah. And the cost of their, what would have been their wage is their, their feed where with, when we go to work, as you say, we, we earn a wage, we go and spend that on feed. We've kind of taken out of the wage and just, you know, in the factory farm there is no wage, there's just the direct reproduction of labour costs right? In, in terms of feed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one way to look at this is capitalism deploys different strategies to deal with the reproductive cost of labour. 
in the case of humans that receive a wage, and remember, not all humans receive a wage, and this is why I think the analysis is interesting. Yeah. So thinking about slavery and... Slavery, but also all the social reproduction yeah, that yeah. happens in the world, all the care labour, that in a sense, there isn't a direct calculation, right? So it allows us to think more laterally about how does production occur within the system. In the case of animals in production, um, there's a different strategy used. So it's not about the wage. Um, it's about taking control over the whole life of the animal and in a quite shrewd and brutal way, minimising the input costs, um, including by, for example, minimising the movement of animals so that you maximise the the yield of the animal. Um, that This is the way that the wage is calculated, right? The animal wage, right? So to me, this is useful, not just as an intellectual exercise, but because it allows us to notice the peculiar dynamics of animal agriculture and the way that it works. So let's go back to thinking about uh, the factory farm and that story I told about the dynamics of it. Humans leave production. So increasingly, human labour time is reduced. And as a result, more animals start to enter production, right? So because more commodities are being produced at the end. The factory farm will have to find ways to minimise the, the cost of animal labour. They can't do this in a way that they do with humans because humans work for a wage for a set period of time, then they go home. The animal's always in the factory. And you can't remove the animal from the factory because they're going to be the commodity at the end. So animal agriculture finds different ways to do this. One way it has found to do this is to reduce the lives of animals, the, the, the length of life. Right? So we see this in chicken production where uh, most chickens live 55 days, I think, in, in um, factory farms. And now there are moves to reduce this even, even more, right? Um, so this is one way to concretely reduce the production costs, i.e. the animal labour time, and increase surplus. The second way is, of course, manipulation of feed conversion rates. So maximising the efficiency of the feed or the inputs that go in. Uh, so that you can maximise the yield. And we've seen a lot of development around that space in, in uh, capitalist animal agriculture. And again, this allows us to look at these and not be trapped by the prism of human wage labour, right? Because so, the only story in human wage labour is, oh, well, we reduce human wages or we remove humans' production. This allows us to actually look at this labour force and pay attention to it. There's a reason why I think this is really interesting, um, the first is that um, it allows us to get away from the obsessiveness around humans in production and recognise that actually capitalism leaps upon life in general. And this fits with where I think a lot of our analysis is going. Right. So if we're going to understand the mess we're in in terms of climate change, it's the fact that this economic system has leapt upon all life and is exploiting it for, to, to produce money, produce surplus money. So it allows us to look at capitalism in its totality and, and also understand when humans leave production that that's not where the story ends. Actually, there's another story of labour going on and different tools and different strategies of labour employed by capitalism, but also different forms of resistance going on. It also allows us to recognise different labour forces. So in this case, I mentioned that probably there are, there's a standing 
stock of 55 billion uh, land animals in factory farms at any one time in uh, globally and probably 300 billion fish in aquaculture facilities. This is a huge labour force, right? So to me, that's something interesting to think about this as a labour force. It's a, it's a labour force that far exceeds human labour power. Um, this doesn't mean that those beings have the political tools to make change the way that maybe human labour forces do, but that's almost beside the point, right? So I'm not making a claim that the animals are going to lead a revolution and save us from capitalism. It's merely to notice that actually this is a huge constituency of, of capitalism. The final reason I think to me the, the analysis has proved important or useful is that lots of theory, either from the kind of left Marxist theory or from animal studies, have largely treated animals as kind of victims of this economic system. So usually animals have been treated as, if we look at some sort of green Marxist analyses, animals are just simply a kind of nature that has been hyper-exploited. Or in animal studies texts, these are sentient beings who've, been, um, who've had their rights trampled on. And I, both, both analyses are correct. But what they've missed is that animals are agents. They are agents of production, just like the worker is an agent of production. The reason they've been leapt on by capitalism is precisely their capacity to produce surplus. Um, the other reason, of course, is their existence as a consumption commodity, which is a different story, and maybe we can get into that. But in a sense, it is the fact that they are agents that has led to this situation. And that's both sobering and empowering. It's empowering in the sense that it allows us to see animals as active beings who've been part of this story of where we're at today and recognise that they are part of the constituency of capitalism in a way that, say, the human worker we might think of as similarly a constituent of this, this economic system. There is something... So you've outlined a lot of things that are new here. So the scale of animal production and violence against animals is something new. The reframing conceptually about how we think about, well, how we analyse animals in this production chain, but how we think of them in there as well as agents and not just victims. And the last one is, I think, a point that you are arguing is that there's something, there's a new modality here of agricultural capitalism. There is something not like the past emerging, that these new changes and this new type of analysis actually exposes to us something new in the factory farm, a new development. Could you just talk me through what that is? Sure, yeah. So it, it partly relates to that story I've, I've given about the trajectory of the factory farm where maybe previous agricultural systems were aimed at meeting subsistence needs um, but we have firstly, true to capitalist animal, uh, all capitalist agriculture, the, the goal is to overproduce commodities without any necessary reference to need in order to produce surplus money. But the analysis also shows that there's something quite peculiar about the way these forces come together for the factory farm. Um, part of this is that humans exit the scene and we're going to see this trajectory continue 
So we're seeing automation in um, dairy production. We're seeing it in some forms of aquaculture. I suspect we're going to see it happen to most intensive animal agriculture is increasing use of automation and the disappearance of human labour from the scene. We're going to keep seeing massification of animals in production. But I also mentioned this story about the, the rise of fixed capital. So enclosures, machines, technologies. One thing I note in the book is that in terms, and this is me speaking as a political theorist, is that the thing that's unprecedented here is the contestation between animals and fixed capital. Lots of animal studies scholarship, if you ask most kind of vegans or vegetarians, why did you become a vegetarian? Why did you stop eating meat? And they'll say, oh, I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation in 19, you know, released, written in 1975. And lots of that book talks about the horror of the factory farm and describes what Singer would describe as a kind of speciesism. I, we discriminate, we treat animals who we know are sentient and intelligent, we treat them in discriminatory ways and this produces this reality that we, we use them without, almost without any kind of constraint. And that's related to your idea of hierarchical anthropocentrism? Yeah, way? it is. I, I would say that speciesism is a less useful phrase than hierarchical anthropocentrism, but it's a, that's a longer, more philosophical yeah, yeah. debate. But one thing I note in the book is that... that the hierarchical bit is important. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I note in the book is that um, maybe in a sense there's something interesting about this from a historical perspective. Maybe it's only at the point at which capitalism and this hierarchical anthropocentrism collaborate that we see animals in this brutal confrontation with fixed capital, with enclosures, huge anonymous enclosures in cages, confronting machines, horrific machines that constrain and hurt and kill them. Maybe it's in watching this brutal confrontation that for the first time we see mass movements of humans saying this is not okay to treat animals this way. So that's a, that's a very kind of almost um, Marxist structuralist account, historical materialist account of change in that maybe I'm making the argument that this isn't necessarily about um, human progress in moral ideas in the way that a liberal like Singer would describe it. Maybe this is actually about a material context where a particular consciousness has emerged as a result of the brutality of what we've seen. The thing that is new is this confrontation between animals and fixed capital. Um, Never in human history has animal agriculture systems placed humans in contact with the machine in such a prominent way. In fact, in the book, I make an argument that within lots of animal studies scholarship, which has been growing over the last 40 years, there's a lot of concentration on the human-animal relation. How do humans relate to animals? And I think what's interesting is we miss that the most prominent relationship between humans and animals isn't actually between humans and animals. It's actually between machines and animals. That's That's the global relationship. And if we look at not only the factory farm system, but the trillions of fish that are hunted down on the oceans through mechanised fishing, this is actually the prominent relationship between human societies, animal societies, is actually mediated through the machine. So to me, that's the thing that's novel. 
And we can see through the analysis that this isn't an accident. It's an outcome of this relationship between hierarchical anthropocentrism and capitalism, which is industrialised production, removed humans from the scene of production and introduced the machine and fixed capital as the interlocutor with animal life. Um, but I'd also say there's some other stuff that broadly is unprecedented and they both, they create both pessimism and maybe some optimism about change. So let's start with the pessimism. As I mentioned, the scale of this production is completely unprecedented and it means that lots of institutional actors are committed to maintaining the status quo. Um, certainly we're seeing this globally. The IPCC, um, I think, has given some of the most strong statements around animal agriculture, its contribution to anthropogenic climate change and the fact that this needs to change. Um, but we're seeing globally animal agriculture indus industries um, colluding, um, lobbying governments in a way that actually is as insidious or maybe more insidious than what the coal industry has been doing to try and maintain the business because of the huge interests in, in this production. But there's a different story that's actually even more complicated and I think more complicated than the coal story and that's about human investment in, in continuing um, with this particular relationship. One proposal I make in the book is that from a biopolitical standpoint, there's something really interesting about thinking about what has happened in the 20th century and beyond because this relationship between hierarchical anthropocentrism and capitalism has produced a massive animal population on the planet who is in a kind of symbiotic, a deadly symbiotic relationship with human lives. So more and more, because of that rising per capita meat consumption and dairy consumption, more and more most humans on the planet now rely on animals to survive. Um, diets have been radically changed in most places on the planet. And in most places on the planet, per capita meat, meat and seafood consumption continues to rise. So we're seeing this continuing trajectory despite everything we would imagine about um, people turning vegetarian diets or being interested in healthy eating or worrying about climate change. Actually, the data shows the opposite. What this tells us is that in a kind of metabolic way, human populations have been tied to animal populations and this is a question of survival. Humans see their survival as relying upon the continued reproduction of these animal populations. The challenge, of course, is how do we unpick this, right? So this, is, this relationship is growing stronger and stronger and it's not clear how we would actually unpick this reliance. In my view, this actually makes the story of how we make this change um, makes it more complicated than the coal story, right, because of the effective attachments that lots of people have on the planet to this particular form of subsistence. The one thing I'd say that optimistically I'd say in the book that I think is interesting is that all food production has increased in the 20th century and beyond. So over the last 100 years, per capita food production has, has uh, expanded substantially and plant-based food consumption has expanded too. So one thing I'd say about 
that I maybe a note of optimism in the book is that firstly, as I described, um, maybe for the first time we're able to see this relationship between humans and animals as one that is fraught and we have large-scale movements of people saying maybe we need to change our relationships with animals. So I think that's, that's maybe it's a symptom of the brutal ways that we treated animals. Secondly, capitalism has created the tools for imagining the possibility of mass-scale transition to plant-based diets. And this is because capitalism has overproduced plant-based foods, right? So again, this is a kind of quasi-optimistic story in the sense that maybe for the first time we could imagine lots of people in societies, at least, transitioning away from animal-based food. But what we need, of course, is the structural change to follow that. That's, of course, not enough because, true to the spirit of the book, we need to also talk about who owns that means of production, and to me, that throws up a range of complicated questions. And overproduction. And overproduction and how we deal with the overproduction. That ra- throws up a range of complicated questions, but to me highlights the, the reality that animal advocates who've largely worked at a distance from left movements committed to large-scale structural change probably need to be having a conversation, right? So in, in some ways, the aim of the book is to bring the animal rights movement, who've often been treated as the so-called orphans of the left, bring them into conversation with um, uh, the broader left movement and to be thinking about what, what is the contribution that we can make, animal advocates can make, to some of the important conversations that need to happen about what is the future of capitalism and how do we develop a more just economic system. Thank you so much for uh, joining me. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation and I'll put a link to the book up on the website. Thanks, Dallas. It's been great.